everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Welcome back, everyone. Um, we are here to do another uh, neurocritical care episode, which I think will be interesting. Um, we have uh, Tom Lawson with us. Tom Lawson's a uh, critical care nurse practitioner over at Ohio State Wexner. Uh, he works in the neurocare, neurocritical care unit. He's also at the uh, James Cancer Hospital in Columbus. Um, he's also more recently a PhD student at the College of Nursing there. He does some work with um, uh, delirium in critically ill stroke patients. Um, and recently, he's co-founded a, a board review course for uh, AGACMP uh, new graduates called Board Review Associates. So a busy guy. And you may remember him if you have been following the show. Uh, we talked to him some time ago about, I believe it was uh, subarachnoid aneurysms. But he's going to help us out with uh, a new case today. And uh, Brian is going to walk us through it. Hey, Tom. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Anything? Yeah, uh, I guess we didn't. I guess we didn't scare you off last time. So um, <laughs> no, it was glad fun. To, glad to repeat customers are always good. Um, so we're going to do another neuro case today. So you're uh, you're at work and you get a call from the ED saying uh, EMS is bringing in a stroke alert patient, and they'd like you to just come on down to the ED and see the patient on arrival. Uh, you don't get a whole lot of information except it is a 75 year old gentleman who uh, is experiencing some profound left-sided weakness, uh, facial droop, slurring of his speech, etc. All sounds pretty much like a stroke. Uh, you get down to the ED, and uh, you've beat EMS there by a few minutes, so you're kind of hanging out waiting to go. Uh, and then in they roll. Uh, you find a, uh, as previously described, 75-year-old gentleman. He does have um, pretty much... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily even call it left-sided weakness as so much as hemiplegia on the left. Um, he is severely dysarthric, uh, but he's more or less conscious and able to follow commands. Um, his daughter is following, but she's not there yet. Uh, and he really can't, so dysarthric, he can't really give you satisfactory answers to your questions. So what do you, how do you want to start working this guy up? Well, if he's coming in as a stroke alert, I would go ahead and do a full neuro exam and simultaneously order a stat head CT, non-contrast, and um, uh, just confirm my general gist. Does this look like a stroke or not? And then head off for this CAT scan. Yeah. So you do a neuro exam. Like I said, you find he is hemiplegic on the left. Uh, he's profoundly dysarthric. Um, pupils are relatively equal and react to light. Um, you go for a head CT and it comes back, um, pretty benign, no obvious bleeding. Um, so where do you go from here? Hey, Tom, let me ask you that in a case like this, um, or even at maybe a, like a stroke, you know, alert patient in the hospital, how thorough of a neuro exam do you feel like you want or need to get before scanning them? Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I mean, if you did a full, like all of the different things you could do, it would take something like 30 to 60 minutes uh, to check all sorts of weird things that are mostly irrelevant for most of the patients. Um, I would probably do a NIH stroke score, uh, which is a, you know, a structured 
neuroassessment, helps with communication. And if we're thinking about indications for um, TPA or not, uh, or thrombectomy, um, the the NIH stroke score, it, it fits within the the decision parameters for some of those protocols. So in most cases, you would do the NIH scale. You would try to get that full thing, but not necessarily anything else or beyond that. No, as far as neuro exam, um, I mean, it includes alertness. And I mean, you're always thinking about, you know, ABCs and are, are they awake enough to protect their airway and they breathe in and stable from a hemodynamic standpoint as well. But I think an NIH stroke score is a, a pretty good place to start at least. You do your NIH. Uh, and like I said, you find that he has pretty um, severe hemiple- hemiplegia um, and he's profoundly dysarthric. But other than that, you do notice that he has a gaze deviation, but it can be overcome. Sorry, his left side is plegic. His right side is basically normal. Okay. Now you said his daughter is on the way and the guy can talk some. Are we able to elicit any other history about uh, when this started or what preceded it? No, he can't. He can basically just sort of give you garbled answers. Uh, you can tell he's trying to answer you, but you can't really understand even if he's able, if he's oriented. Okay. Well, um, without other history of um, when the last time that he was known to be normal, um, I mean, I'm starting to think along the lines of TPA, if he has a, a normal CT and there's no bleeding on there. Uh, but until we can... Um, rule out some of the absolute contraindications to TPA, as well as figure out if he falls within a short enough time frame uh, to give TPA, for presumably for ischemic stroke, um, then I, I think we have to kind of hold off and try harder to contact this uh, family member that's on the way. Okay, so while you're discussing all this, uh, the, the triage nurse calls and says, the daughter's here, she was just parking the car, uh, can I let her on back? So she comes back. What uh, questions do you have for her? So I see he's weak on the left side and uh, is having difficulty talking. When did this start? Uh, She says it started about an hour ago. They were eating lunch, and suddenly he complained that he was having a hard time moving his left arm. She noticed his speech starting to slur and the facial droop, and she had heard all of these things about these were signs of a stroke, so she called 911 right away. Okay, good. So if, if this all started an hour ago, we're um, definitely within the kind of three-hour limit of, um, or three to four and a half uh, hour limit for um, uh, giving IV TPA. Um, the other thing I probably should have done before is get a also a, a CTA of the head and neck and a CT perfusion scan. And the other questions that I'd be wanting to know from the daughter are all center on um, the uh, contraindications for giving thrombolytics, like recent surgeries, old um, brain bleeding, any bleeding from anywhere, recent falls. Um, I don't have the list in front of me, but I would just go through a whole checklist of uh, why should we not give TPA and see if I can um, make a case to go ahead and give this to him based on the clinical diagnosis of acute ischemic stroke. Sure. Okay. So she tells you he has not had any recent surgeries, no recent falls. He's a fairly healthy guy. He has some high blood pressure. He does have a fib. Uh, he takes warfarin for that. He, uh, has some type one di- or sorry, type two rather diabetes and some high cholesterol. 
And he's been actually taking the warfarin? He has, yes. Okay, so I believe that is a contraindication of TPA. So the other indi- the other um, treatment that then that we have left for this guy is potentially um, thrombectomy. And so the uh, decision ma- decision process on whether or not we can uh, go for that is whether or not he has a large vessel occlusion, uh, typically in the the MCA, like the M1 distribution or a carotid clot. So I'd want to get back to CT for a, a CT angiogram. And then also the, the CT perfusion study. I know not all places have the capability to do this. It's a more advanced CT technique, which um, can give you both the infarct core size in terms of volume, but also at-risk tissue or penumbra. And then the ratio between those two things, uh, as well as the presence of a um, the presence in the anatomy of the presumed arterial occlusion, uh, will be will be able to make the case for activating a uh, uh, an attempt at a thrombectomy. Okay, so you do you do a CT uh, A of his head and neck, and you find that he does have a large occlusion at the M1. Uh, the CTP is amenable to thrombectomy. Um, so he seems like he would be a good candidate for thrombectomy. Um, so you you would, I assume, activate uh, the angio team for this? Yeah. Yeah, and okay. um, in, our, in our shop, it, this all happens kind of simultaneously. Um, and in some places, the uh, angiography, so the cerebra, cerebral angiography stuff is done by interven- neurointerventional radiology. And in some places, it's with neurosurgery. But either way, th- these people should be um, headed our way immediately if they're not already there. And, you know, calling in the, the, the techs and stuff to, uh, to make sure that the lab is ready to go. Now, Tom, uh, I from what I remember of these thrombectomy studies, some did perfusion, you know, evaluation with CTA, as in this case, and some used uh, an MRI modality. We we do the the CTP as well, but is anyone still using MRI for this? I've heard of that. Um, I think it's difficult to um, to get a timely MRI. the The protocol would be a uh, I think just a T2 and a diffusion weighted image because all you want to do is rule out bleeding and then rule in ischemia. Um, and so, I mean, that would be more, um, more specific uh, in terms of versus a, a non-contrast CT, uh, more specific in ruling in ischemic stroke. But I think there's a lot of logistical issues, um, you know, having, having an MRI in the ER ready to go all the time and reserved and not, you know, not somebody else not in there for a 45 minute long study as well as ruling out, you know, all the implanted medical or metal devices and stuff. So we just do CTs. Yeah. It certainly seems a lot easier when they're getting CTs anyway. So let's say Tom, you know, what if you're, what if you're somebody listening now who is practicing in a hospital setting that doesn't have, the capability to do thrombectomy. What do you do for this patient? Probably transfer um, urgently to a uh, like a comprehensive stroke center or someplace that does have this uh, capability. I know in our we, we have a, a system wide setup with a, a spoken hub model where our 
uh, neurovascular physicians do uh, telehealth consults um, around the clock with uh, patients that show up in the ER at you know dozens of smaller hospitals um, in a radius of maybe an hour and a half or two from Columbus. And uh, that helps to kind of facilitate um, transfer if it's indicated, um, but also to uh, get people to an uh, interventional suite if they can do that within the, the appropriate time frame. Okay. So we didn't really mention this. I mean, we, you, you said something about the time frame for TPA, but let's, let's just kind of go over that real quick and review with folks. Um, what is the time frame for TPA administration? Um, so the, the first one is sooner is better. And it, it's almost like a silly truism, but you know, time is brain. So the, the cutoff is cut. There, there's several of them. It's kind of three hours. So if you get there at one hour, it doesn't mean we have two hours left. That means we have like, let's get on this and do it right now, even though three hours doesn't come around for a while. Um, off the tip of my tongue, I can't remember all. There's there's so many uh, over the over the last decade or so. There's been a lot of um, extra nuance, if this then that uh, type of things. I believe it's out to four and a half hours in some cases for TPA. I think it's for younger patients. And this guy, I think, if I remember right, is 75. Yes. Yeah. So I, th- I think for him, it may be three hours. Um, and I, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what it is. And is that different for younger patients? Yeah. There's some circumstances where it can, the, the time frame can be extended out to four and a half hours. Okay. Now, if a let's say he did qualify for TPA, does that, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Does that change your plans vis-a-vis thrombectomy at all? Uh, kind of, but not really. Uh, so since he has a an M1 distribution stroke, so that's the first segment of the MCA artery, uh, that counts as a large vessel occlusion. And so we would give him IV TPA if there's no contraindications to that, and then immediately send him off for uh, angiogram and possible thrombectomy. If things go great, the, the TPA completely dissolves the clot and he has clean arteries. Um, that's often not the case. And um, a thrombectomy can be performed, flow restored, and hopefully you know that improves the outcomes. I mean, the number needed to treat for TPA is something like two. It's it's a, like really really low, meaning the uh, um, you know everybody likes to think about the the risk of some catastrophic bleeding or whatever with TPA, but the the risks of bleeding are really pretty low, especially if you follow the the contraindications. Um, but the number that you need to treat to actually help people is only just a couple cases. Okay. So let's say you're in a smaller hospital out in the community or even a rural hospital, and this guy comes in and he qualifies for TPA. So you give him TPA. He's got a large vessel occlusion. So then you transfer him to a center that could do a thrombectomy. But let's say he has a, let's say he has a distal M2 thrombus instead. What, what's your sort of decision point as to should I transfer this patient to a comprehensive stroke center versus continue to manage them here in my facility? Um, I think it, it, it's a little tricky and it's individualized to different centers. And it, it goes to um, what is the, 
the expertise and comfort level taking care of these people. You know, if you do it day in and day out and it's kind of your bread and butter type of diagnosis that you care for, then uh, the outcomes are, are going to just trend towards being better than, than if you see not too many of these. Uh, so a lot of it depends on the, the, the comfort and expertise of the, of the smaller facilities. Um, I think the, like we had kind of talked about before with the thrombectomy, you know, if it, if it is a large vessel occlusion, uh, in my mind, that's like a, a hard, definitely transfer to a place, you know, assuming you're not like way, way, way out in the middle of nowhere where, you know, you can't, you can't get to, a, you know, a, uh, a comprehensive stroke center or a place that has this capability. Uh, but there's there's a lot of things that come up in the within the first couple days of caring for an acute stroke case that um, it, you know it, it takes a fair amount of resources and it it's kind of a they're kind of complex patients often and so uh, yeah I think I think it just depends on the the expertise of the the smaller or mid-sized hospitals okay. Um, okay, so you've got the team activated. They're on their way in. You're talking with the patient and his daughter and telling him what to expect. Um, the daughter says, does my dad have to be put to sleep for this? Is this like a surgery or does, is he going to have to be put on a ventilator? Um, what are your thoughts on airway management in these folks? Um, I don't think it needs to necessarily be a universal intubation. Uh, for every every thrombectomy, a lot of them don't actually need that. Um, if they, you know, if the obviously if the airway is compromised, they're hypoxic, they're you know just not breathing well for whatever reason. Obviously, those people are going to need tubed. But um, if they are a little bit wiggly or difficult to cooperate, um, you know, and lay still throughout the procedure, I mean, they're very small catheters introduced into very small arteries in very fragile tissue. So you don't want people, you know, sitting up on you because their aphasia can don't understand the commands or, or for whatever reason. So I think, uh, airway related concerns, um, hypoxia and, and hypoventilation, as well as the ability to cooperate and lay still would be the main indications. Okay. Um, so what about blood pressure management in these folks at this initial stage? Uh, this is something that makes the head spin on people that are new to neuro and then come into my world uh, because there's so many different blood pressure goals. So the the general principle for ischemic stroke is that you have so you have a, a, a dead core of brain. This is the, the core infarct. That's that's done. You can't do anything about it. There's also going to be the penumbra or the at-risk tissue surrounding that and that varies in size um, but we want to on one side have higher blood pressure and push blood push arterial blood into that at-risk tissue via collateral flow yet at the same time recognize that there's ischemic friable tissue that is prone to bleeding so the so if so if we've given IV TPA to this guy, we want him to be less than 180 systolic pressure. And I would just let him float as long as he's not hypotensive or something. I would just kind of let him float. You know, if he's 120, great. If he goes 165, great. Just keep him under 180. 
Um, if he had the thrombectomy, um, you know, we have flow restored both to that penumbra tissue, but also to tissue that's presumably dead. Uh, in, the, in addition to the, the neurons being dead, the blood vessels are also damaged from an, an ischemic standpoint as well. So there's a risk of bleeding into the infarct. So in that case, I would say less than 160. Um, if there is bleeding, I would probably go less than 140. And then moving backwards, if we didn't do any of this stuff, so we've got an ischemic stroke, no TPA, no thrombectomy, I would do less than 220. Okay, and so let's say he um, he goes to thrombectomy, and he comes out, and he's in the ICU now, and he his systolic pressure, his blood pressure is 190 over 100. So he's had thrombectomy. There's no, it wasn't any actual bleeding. So you're wanting his systolic less than 160? Yes. Okay. So he's 190 over 100 now. What are your go-to drugs to get his blood pressure down and under control? Um, I use a lot of intermittent dosing of labetalol and hydralazine, but I have a pretty low threshold to start a nicardipine drip. What's You say pretty low threshold. What do you oh, mean? yeah. So, you know, maybe give this guy... 10 or 20 milligrams of IV labetalol as an intermittent IV push, and then see what happens. And if I don't get to my goal pretty easily that way, then I would go ahead and just start nicardipine. You give him some labetalol, that doesn't seem to help much. You give him some hydralazine, it helps a little bit, but you end up starting him on nicardipine. Um, how fast are you titrating it up? Um, um, you know, are you are you started at fifteen and see what happens, or are you go at two no, and a half and go incrementally? I probably started at five and then um, moved by two and a half to five every ten or so minutes. It's not a super fast titrating drug. Okay. Um, do you use uh, anything else? You ever use clavitapine for these folks? Yeah. So. Some people just don't respond well to nicardipine. You get all the way up to the, the maximum dose, uh, and then we'll go to clavitapine, which is uh, another calcium channel blocker, but it's lipid-soluble. So it's, it's in, it looks like propofol. It's white, kind of milky-looking stuff. That stuff is a rapidly titratable drug. I forget, it's like every two minutes or something, you can change the dose on that. And just about everybody will get under control with clavitapine. Okay. All right, so he you end up at a round, uh, let's say twelve of of nicardipine, and his blood pressure is under control. Good. Um, what other things are you kind of concerned about, just in terms of some general housekeeping, admission order type things? It's all, it's kind of funny because it's like really thinking, you know, ten steps down the line, but they're urgent things that I can't move forward without. One is how much does this guy weigh? How much does this guy weigh? Because I'm trying to put in the orders for the nicardipine and it's weight-based. And then two, um, is there any chance he can swallow? Uh, because if he can't, then we're going to have to start thinking about enteral access and how do I, you know, do I order meds uh, to go down the NG or, or, or um, orally? Um, a lot of these people are going to have dysphagia and not be able to swallow. Um, but that's, like I said, a couple steps down the line, but it's, it tends to come up early. Sure. Um, so how do you get in, how do you gauge whether they can swallow or not? Um, we have, uh, we followed the Yale swallowing screening where the, the nurses do some training and they, uh, it's, it's like a, 
a protocol swallow screen. And um, if they pass that, then we can go ahead and proceed with um, you know, traditional swallowing. And if not, uh, kind of depending on the urgency of, you know, and just my general gist of whether or not they're going to be able to swallow tomorrow or not versus um, how urgent any sort of meds are, I'll just put in an NG tube or, or have the speech therapist see them tomorrow. Now, what about sodium? So um, for right now, it probably doesn't matter too much. Uh, as he starts to swell in the next few days, um, that could potentially be an issue. Uh, so as long as he didn't come in really hyponatremic, um, I would probably just leave it alone, keep it in the 135 to 145 range. Okay. Now, are you somebody, do you like to target a hypernatremia based on the degree of swelling on CT or are you more of a targeted um, treat hype, uh, use hypernatremia to treat symptomatic increases in pressure? I kind of straddle that fence. Mm. I, I see arguments on, on both sides. And I think if you, if you target a higher sodium level prematurely, then you reach a new homeostasis and you've lost um, uh, treatment options for when you really get in a pinch. Uh, so that uh, that's what kind of makes me more of a, uh, a symptomatic bolus type of guy. Um, but um, kind of institutionally, I think the, the Gestalt is start him on a, uh, an infusion of 3%, uh, target a, a sodium goal of something a little bit higher than whatever they are right now and stick with that. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about the decision to transfer or not, that these folks have a lot of complicated issues in the first couple of days after their stroke. What are you, what are you talking about there? What are some of the big complications that you anticipate in a guy like this? Um, well, the, the, one of the first things that I'm thinking about is why did this person have a stroke? And, you know, there's uh, the, the diagnostic process to come to that sometimes is super easy and obvious, and sometimes it can be pretty complex. Um, for example, in this guy, you said he has uh, atrial fibrillation. He's on warfarin. W you know, was his INR actually therapeutic or not? So it's, it's kind of w working up the etiology. Um, the other thing, and we kind of started to touch on this with the sodium, um, the the cerebral edema that follows stroke can be pretty mild or um, severe and fatal. So this guy's a little older. He's 75. So uh, with time aging, as well as time um, drinking, you tend to have, that's drinking alcohol, uh, you tend to have cerebral atrophy. And so as there's atrophy, there's a little bit more space to accommodate the swelling versus somebody who's young, uh, young people have less space to accommodate swelling. And they often tend to have larger strokes because there's less collaterals. Uh, so um, younger people, uh, and that really kind of under 60 years or so, uh, if they had a large MCA stroke, especially if it included the deep structures in the basal ganglia, thalamus and such, they may need to have a hemicraniectomy, uh, which is a, a fairly 
morbid procedure. Um, and that's, it just, that's not really a small hospital type of procedure and care to have that, uh, something like that done. So we've got, uh, etiology of stroke, um, swelling from stroke. We've talked about swallowing. Um, there, there's a, I mean, the, the amount of dysphagia that these people have is, is quite a bit. Um, lots of NG tubes, lots of peg tubes. Here's a question. Um, would after a case like this, you know, big ischemic stroke thrown back to me, um, when would you consider, or really when should you resume a chemical DVT prophylaxis? And then I presume after that, full anticoagulation and someone who continued to need it, such as this patient who's, you know, has AFib and maybe just had a stroke from his AFib. Yeah. So DVT prophylaxis, um, that should be on hold for 24 hours after the TPA. And then, uh, we'll typically get another CAT scan at about 24 hours. And then if there's no significant hemorrhage, now a little bit of petechial hemorrhage or something is okay. Uh, but if there's no significant hemorrhage, we'll get that started 24 hours after the TPA. And that's also when they could have maybe aspirin. Yeah. Yeah. What about full anticoagulation? That's a, a more nuanced question. It's, it, it depends on a lot of things. Um, first is what is the indication for anticoagulation? So for example, AFib, it's more of a middle of the road in my mind. Um, you know, you can go for a couple extra days in AFib and not, not have a huge risk of having another stroke or a major complication. Whereas if you had a, you know, a mechanical heart valve or something, you'd really want to get on getting that restarted as soon as possible. And the other thing that plays into it is the size of the stroke, as well as in my mind, the ischemic time before revascularization. So larger strokes and um, longer ischemic times, those patients have a higher risk of major hemorrhage into the ischemic area. And so for people like that, I would tend to wait longer, maybe even like pushing a week. Now, what about, we kind of talked about monitoring or um, treating sort of symptomatic increases in ICP. Is there an indication in acute ischemic stroke patients to place an ICP monitor, either like a, uh, like a bolt or like a true EBD ventriculostomy catheter? Yeah, I don't think there's much of an indication for a bolt. Um, in terms of ventriculostomy or EBD catheter, um, generally not, unless not not specific for ICP monitoring, but if they develop hydrocephalus, which would be more common with a posterior fossa, like a cerebellar stroke, you know, where it pinches off the, the swelling can cause the fourth ventricle to get pinched off. Uh, then, then there'd be an indication for, for EVD, which then as a secondary thing would give you ICP monitoring, but generally no. Okay. So, you know, a day or two pass and this guy's looking pretty good. His blood pressure's well controlled with the nicardipine, uh, but at some point he can't just live on nicardipine. What's a process that you're going to go through now to, to wean him off of that and 
uh, onto something presumably oral for blood pressure control. And, you know, how long are you, how long do you want to keep these goals in place for blood pressure control? Um, the first place I'd, I'd start with oral antihypertensives is his home med list. You know, if he's on an ACE or something like that at home, I'd probably get those restarted fairly early on in his course. Um, and if he either didn't have a history of hypertension or, or did, but was untreated, then I would just follow regular hypertension medical management guidelines and start doing things like ACE and hydrochlorothiazide and maybe a beta blocker like Coreg or something along those lines and kind of like work, work your way up through those. Uh, in terms of the timing of the um, uh, normalizing of these blood pressure goals, like we said before, you know, potentially allowing uh, blood pressure to go up to 180 or 220 in a lot of these cases. Um, the I, I would I would kind of think back to what what was the what was the penumbra like on the perfusion imaging, the CT perfusion, or we also have MRI perfusions in some cases. And what is the what does the vascular imaging in the head and neck look like? And so how so ultimately you're gonna to wanna to get the patient back to like normal blood pressure goals, you know, like one one ten, one twenty or something back down in that range by the time you send them home. And so how long is it gonna take this guy to kind of reequilibrate and be perfusing his brain well. Um, I think once we get out like a half a week or a week or so, we can kind of slowly start normalizing that and follow an exam. Sometimes people have blood pressure dependent neurologic exams where if the blood pressure goes below X number, whatever that is, suddenly they get more drowsy or more weak on one side or something because they just need that extra little bit of pressure. And in that case, you can kind of individualize the plan. Okay. And does it matter to you if they've had a thrombectomy or not, or if they got TPA or not? Not too much. Um, the initial blood pressure goals are pretty specific to whether or not they had TPA or thrombectomy or neither. Um, but ultimately, you know, when we're looking out, you know, weeks or more down the road, weeks or months, um, hypertension is a risk factor for ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic for that matter. Uh, so we're going to want to get them normalized at like whatever the most normal blood pressure we can get yet still keep them perfused. So let's say, you know, he, this guy, he has a thrombectomy. And so we're saying less than 160, um, you know, a couple of days out, are you liberalizing that at all? Or are you still saying less than 160? Um, I don't have real strong opinions on it. I might just stick with 160. Um, all right. So now he's looking pretty good. He's off the cardine. He's on, um, back on his home antihypertensive regimen. What are you looking for to decide when it's appropriate to transfer this guy out of the ICU? So the, the hard stops are going to be the obvious things like, so he's, he's not, not ever been on pressers. So that's one. He's not on the vent. We never need to, never needed to innovate him, so that's those are kind of like the two hard stops. Um, we got him off the nicardipine. We technically can send non-titratable cardine drips out to the step down unit, 
but practically don't ever do that. The, the neuro exam kind of specific things are, you know, we've, I probably would have wanted to get an MRI somewhere on the first or second day just to see. So, you know, we were, we know we revascularized him, but he did have some ischemic time. So how big is the stroke? If it's huge, then we, like we had talked about with, um, uh, cerebral edema, the bigger the stroke, the more likely they are to have edema. But as long as the, the, the guy looks okay, you know, he, he just has a MCA syndrome and, um, it's, it's not more than that in terms of like high ICP, you know, not, not that we're monitoring it, but not like high ICP related stuff, like he's herniating or, um, super drowsy. Um, often within a day or two after a thrombectomy, we can get him out of the ICU. Um, so yeah, so a couple of days have gone by and he's looking pretty good. He's still, um, he's still plegic on the left side. What, uh, what is his daughter wants to know sort of, well, what's this look like for him? Is this, is this going to be forever? He's not going to be able to move his left side or is he going to have to go to rehab or what's recovery look like for these folks? I often will counsel family members that we know, we know he's going to have disability. Like we know we have, um, our, our exam shows us that and our imaging shows us that. And we know he's going to have weakness on that side, but the degree of weakness that he has, it's a little bit hard to predict because everybody's a little bit different, but it's hard to really have good neuroprognostication until you get several months out from the original injury. And I feel like that's a pretty good blanket statement for all sorts of things, whether it be stroke or TBI or, or or other things, but things that point us towards less recovery are advanced age. So this guy's 75. He's not super old, but he's a, a relatively elderly gentleman. And so I, I wouldn't count on much improvement. Um, sometimes in an MCA stroke, the foot can come back a little bit such that you might be able to bear some weight on it and thus not be wheelchair bound. But it's kind of a wait and see game. Well, uh, I think that's all I've got. Brandon, do you have anything else to add? I think that was a great look at this. I mean, this is like such a common thing anywhere yeah. that uh, handles neurotype patients. I think I, I want to say it's a growing patient population because of the growth of thrombectomy as an intervention. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that all we were doing uh, for many of these patients is, is TPA or, or nothing. But now I'm, I mean, I, I can see a point in the indeterminate future where, I don't know, maybe there's no systemic thrombolysis. Maybe it's just, you know, endovascular measures like that. And, you know, a lot of what we do in the ICU is, is supportive, but, you know, uh, you know, important for all that. that. You know, people get serious complications from these things. And, you know, it's certainly routine that we have to intervene on things like their blood pressure, um, you know, monitoring edema and things like that. So it's, you know, kind of bread and butter neurocritical care. You know, it's interesting that you, you say that about thrombectomy and uh, maybe at some point we do away with systemic thrombolysis. You know, a few decades ago, this was coronary care. 
right? Patients would come in with ACS and MI, and there'd be this debate of TPA versus PCI. And now that's pretty much unheard of, right? We don't, we don't do TPA for people that are having an MI. Everybody goes to the cath lab. Uh, and I've often kind of wondered why we're not there with stroke yet. Well, it took time, I guess. I mean, it, the idea now of getting a, an MI that you you just sit and watch and let them complete their infarct is, is almost totally wacky. Yeah. But, I mean, that's still done with some strokes, but, you know, fewer and fewer because so many more people are candidates for neuro interventions than are for that kind of narrow window for TPA. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even um, systemic thrombolytics for stroke, that's a relatively new thing. I forget the date that there was actually an indication for TPA for acute ischemic stroke, but it wasn't that long ago. And even with the interventions that we have available widely across like almost the entire country, there's so, there's so many people that get, that develop a stroke syndrome and then I just not feeling well. I'm going to go to bed and see what I'm like in the morning. And then they blow their window for having any sort of intervention done. So, I mean, there's a huge number of people um, that don't have any intervention at all because they present outside that. Well, I think the, the two of the practically useful things that this is doing for us is one that it's even regardless of what the intervention is, um, just the use of perfusion imaging, whether it's your CT or MRI or whatever, to evaluate you know, how much of a salvageable penumbra there actually is versus just guessing with the use of time windows really feels much more objective than saying, ah, you missed it by one minute. Sorry. Um, And it it also, I mean, there is still a debate about the utility and the, you know, the potential harms of TPA. Um, And it's been like the debate that will never die. And depending on who you (laughs) ask, like everyone should get TPA or nobody should. Um, But it kind of seems like the way we're going to get out of this is just by moving to a different intervention. Because I don't think anyone is arguing about these thrombectomies anymore. So maybe we can just kind of gradually phase out TPA. Yeah, I think that would be great. I mean, you're right. It is sort of the debate that won't die. Um, and it does seem to depend whoever you ask is very passionate one way or the other. Yeah, there's whichever way the debate ends, there sure is a lot of people that have a stroke and it sure causes a lot of disability. All right, Tom, this has been a great chat. Um, thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah. Happy to do it. All right, guys. Um, we'll hit you back with some more topics in a couple weeks.